this. And as I, oh, there we go. There you go. Good job. Um, as we walk through some of these things, um, if reading through different commentaries, reading through so many, there seems to be an interesting split among commentators as to whether he's being uh, pessimistic, continuing to be fatalistic on this, or whether or not he's actually saying some things that are positive. Um, I much more fall under the approach that this is far from being fatalist, far from being pessimistic, as we're going to continue on and see all of these things. But notice at the close of verse 1, as he adds in, a time to every purpose under heaven. A biblical understanding of time must begin with who? With God. Absolutely must begin with God. Especially within a Christian worldview, we must begin with an understanding of who God is. He has ordained all that is to come to pass, that he has made many decrees, and we see so much of the very rule of God that all that happens in this universe is under his authority of the very God who rules in heaven. One of the most uh, perhaps discouraging things that all of us come to realize in life is that there is such a thing that exists as time. We never have enough of it. We always want more. And when we use it, we can never actually get it back. There is a very limited amount of time in this time. Each and every one of us also, and our time on this earth, has a different amount of it. In a world now where everything is meant to be equal, where opportunity is meant to be equal, where outcome is also meant to be equal, and this is a great striving that everybody has, what we very quickly find is that it is simply not possible. Fairness. It's often sought in certain contexts, right? I lobby for fairness when it means that I get something that I don't actually have. I remember when uh, my brothers first were um, going off to college and they got to set their own schedules and they were getting to do all of these different things that me, as a, a sophomore in high school, I wasn't able to do. I would say, that's not fair. And how now I long for the days of being back as a sophomore in high school where I didn't have those responsibilities and that they had to do. Where, where now there was this idea of all of this added discipline, all these extra responsibilities that when I went to college and I said, this is not fair. I'm responsible for everything on my own. It's not fair that I don't have. And you guys understand how that plays out. Fairness is only something that we want when it benefits us. It's the idea that many people carry with this understanding of it is not fair that a loving God would ever send a person to hell. It's not fair that a person would ever come under the wrath of God. That's not fair. But it's also not fair, and we as Christians, we have a very good understanding of our sin, and we also understand the beauty of salvation is that it isn't fair. The fact that sinful man can be redeemed and can receive eternal life that we do not deserve, grace and mercy itself inherently means it's not fair. 
But we often only ask that question in the opposite way. When we feel we're a victim of something, we say, that's not fair. When we benefit, we say, hey, that's pretty cool. And we have no problem with fairness. Here he says there is a time to every purpose under heaven. We have an incredible understanding because we know from what Scripture teaches that our God reigns in the heaven. He reigns yesterday, today, and forever, always seated on the throne, and he has authority over all things, that God's holy, wise providence governs all of his creation. And here, as we go through this poem in verses 2 through 8, we're going to see something that is descriptive, not prescriptive. The reason I say that that's important is here we see observation. Here we see Solomon going through and seeing that there is a time for all of these things, but he's not encouraging you just to go out and just go do them all. We're going to see specifically here, verse 3, a time to kill. This is not prescriptive to where we say, now is the time to go and kill things. So go and do it. There's a time for it. And that time is not every single minute of every single day. And I'm sure all of you understand that. But he is making his observations from the vantage point of that which is under heaven, this eternal mindset here. So now we get into verse 2. He says, A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. Here we see a comparison, a figure of speech, which takes two polarities or two opposite ends meant to show a whole. We see this at the very outset of Scripture where it says God created the heavens and the earth. He's created everything, right? We're talking about a completeness. We're talking about the fullness. If you lose something and we say, I searched high and low for it, does that mean you found a fixed point, you looked up, and you looked down and said, well, it's not there, it's gone. That means you looked everywhere for it. You absolutely have looked everywhere again, talking about the whole. We see as we continue on throughout all of this, there's a definite order in the way that God does things. Do you believe that God is orderly in the way that he does things? We look at the days of creation. We see a very literal sequencing of things that are done. It is very orderly. It's not this chaos uh, mindset where things just happen to be. As we look through this, as we continue through time, I want to stop for a minute, and those of you that love words are going to be really excited about this. Yes, one of you. Right? There's two different words in the Greek that are used for time. There's kairos and there's chronos. Okay? How many of you, we'll go show of hands or show of wrists, have a watch? You wear a watch on your wrist. Okay. Wow, so many of you. That's great. I've never been able to. I didn't like the feeling of it. Okay, but you have on your wrist a watch. It tells you what time that it actually is. That's more chronos. That's time. What time of day that it is, and you can say the time. That's why it's also called a chronometer, right? So it tells you what time it is and how incredibly useful it is to know what time of day it is, the same way it's useful to know the seasons. There's a very practical use to being able to know these things. Imagine as a farmer, again, I'm trying to expand my horizons here with an illustration. I, had, I was going to struggle to find a sports reference in here, so I'm going to do it this way. Imagine not knowing what time of year it was, not knowing seasons, not knowing there's an order to it, 
And someday, as could happen here in Colorado, in January, you have a nice warm day, snow melts, and you say, ah, springtime. What's going to happen? If you go out, you're planting everything you were doing, all that you would expect to do in springtime, but it's the middle of January. How successful are you going to be? Not incredibly successful. I am a super city kid, and I know that's not going to work. Or as some of you would say, that dog won't hunt. See, I went to Nebraska. I'm coming back with all sorts of sayings now that all of, that all of you understand, and I'm just now trying to figure out. Thank you. We all, we all grow at different rates. But understanding that this is what chronos is, this is time viewed as duration. Again, what time is it right now? It is 11.25. That is the chronos currently. But the word that is used as he continues on throughout all of this is not time in what time of day is it, what, what season essentially is it just going to be, but it's kairos, it's time viewed as opportunity. It's a moment in time defining what is going to come after it. What year is it? I told you guys we we're going to participate more as a group. We're doing it. What year is it? 2019, yes. Okay? It is 2019. There is a kairos. There is a time, a fixed point, which determined how we were going to set and judge every year after that. What do we largely, culturally, and largely as a world tend to use as that time, as that kairos for how everything would be determined that would come after? The birth of Christ. That's zero. Everything that came after, because it was so incredibly significant that everything that was to come after it was going to be influenced by that absolute event. A question this morning what time is it in your life? What time is it right now? And of course, I'm not asking, is it still 1125? Is it 1127 now? I'm, I'm not too concerned about that. But what time is it? There is a time for everything. There are times in life that we celebrate or that we remember or that fix a certain point where everything that we know afterwards is influenced by that again. The very year that we experience now was based off of a fixed point. Why is it that we celebrate the Lord's Supper? Because there was a moment in time, a moment of a very crucial moment with which we find very significant. How many of you hear the numbers 9 and an 11 and don't inherently link it to a very particular event in American history? You remember where you were. Some of you were around, and all the way back, you remember exactly where you were seated when you found out or heard on the radio or text messages and email, of course, when JFK was assassinated. You guys all got the alerts on your phones, right? <laughs> yeah. Remember that? See? <laughs> JFK? No. No. <laughs> Yeah, what just happened? Something happened, right? But you remember where you were when you heard over the radio or you heard that very first time the president has been shot. For some of you, maybe it was Reagan. Now, he survived it because Reagan was just a monster of a man. But he survived this. But you remember particular events in history where it took place 
And it was so crucial that everything that came after that we are now linking. You hear 9-11, you hear 9-1-1, we're immediately linking our minds to that event of September 11th. It was crucial in our mind and in our memory. Here in verse 2, it says, There is a time to be born and a time to die. These are the two most momentous experiences in life, your birth and your death. Yet in both of these things, God is the one who appoints the time of your birth just as he does the time of your death. There is no such thing as an untimely death. We see here, as we go through the Psalms, we see that God is the one who brings life into the world. This is David as he understands that he was formed in his mother's womb, that it is God who has done these things. Turn for a moment to Job chapter 14. I want to read verses 5 through 6. Job, as he is talking about man in chapter 14, verses 5 through 6, he says, Seeing his days are determined, the number of his months are with thee. Thou hast appointed his bounds that he cannot pass. Turn from him that he may rest till he shall accomplish as an hireling his day. But we understand that man's days are determined. They are fixed. They are set. That man's death, again, is not going to be untimely. It is not as if um, death is going to be um, something that is simply appointed by man. We continue to see this parallel, a time to plant and a time to pluck up. Notice how closely that parallels a time to be born and a time to die. The planting of a seed is meant to do what? It's meant to be giving life. It's to, to bring birth and life within this planting and then plucking up, very synonymous with death. Because just as we pluck up a plant, those of you that have a garden, those of you that pick weeds or pull weeds or whatever it is that you do, in the very same way that you pluck those up all of a sudden, every single one of us, our very life could be plucked up immediately. And though for some, we may simply just die and pass and wither away, we also have this understanding that one's life can end abruptly. And so we see how synonymous that these are with one another. We see these close parallels, and we continue to see this played out there in verses 3 and 4, that there is a time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. Verse 3 is clear that there is a time to kill. And there is also a time to heal. We once again see life and we see death. We see a beginning and an end, that there is a time where life is to be taken. There is a time for preserving life. We see building up and breaking down. Think about one of the more familiar um, events of breaking down, of God breaking something down in biblical history. It's Genesis chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel that was built up. Who broke that down? God did. There is a time to break down. He, command, he has Jeremiah go, and he is going to break down as he is preaching the judgment of Israel, it is a breaking down so that he may build up as God has built up a house for Israel, a kingdom of God. 
how many of you in your attempts to build up something new have to first take away that which already exists? We don't always like to do it. We don't really like change. And we say, yes, this is new and this may be better, but this is how we've always had it. This is how we've always done it. We have to keep it the exact same way. But also, conversely, we understand that not all change is for the better. Not all change improves something. We see so much of the very character of God as we walk through all of this and we understand that there is a time to be born and a time to die, a time to kill and a time to heal. We see these contrasts that are at work in the same way that we see that God is a God of love, but yet he is also a God of wrath, that he is just, but he is also merciful. And these seem as if they are in conflict because we tend to view God as one-dimensional. Commonly, some Christians and those outside of the church, we like to view God as one-dimensional. We say, yes, he is the God who gives life, but doesn't ever take it. That God would never take a life. And yet, we very clearly see throughout all of Scripture that God is the one who gives and takes away. He gives life. And he takes it away. We look in Acts chapter 5 where those, they're coming before Peter and they say, and they've essentially stolen from the church, right? What happens as they lie? Struck dead. It wasn't Peter that did it. God did it. We say, well, God gives life, but he doesn't appoint a time of death. Yet God plants things, but he doesn't ever pluck anything up. That God would never bring judgment or he would never do this. He builds things. He doesn't ever break anything down. He, he's love and he's absent of wrath. But we understand this is simply not the case. And even in our salvation, we understand that, yes, God is gracious and he is merciful, but yet he is still just, which means our sin had to be atoned for. It's not as if our sin is just evaporated as if it had never happened. Understanding Jesus himself became sin, that all sin will be punished under the wrath of God. And Romans 1 is very, very clear in these ways. We see there in verse 4 of, of weeping and laughing, of mourning and of dancing. Can you think of things that are in more of a contrast than, than weeping and dancing, or weeping and laughing. How many of you have ever been in a situation where the way that you have responded, you've realized this was wrong for the situation? Yeah, some of us, right? I find myself there on occasion. There, there would be nothing more awkward than to be dancing at a time of weeping and mourning, or of laughing at a time where everybody around you is sad. Imagine as everybody is mourning the loss of a loved one and there is someone amidst the group that is laughing and that is dancing. How would many of us respond? Someone would come alongside them and say, this is not the time for this. As Lazarus was found to be dead, as Christ goes and he gets to the tomb, what is he seen doing over Lazarus? He is weeping. Did he know that he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead? Absolutely. So much so that he waited a few days to even travel so that everyone would know he was dead. 
and that he was going to have power over death and raise Lazarus to life. He's weeping. He doesn't show up there laughing and dancing because he understands there's not, that's not the time for it. There is a time for these things. And yet again, we see a contrast of, of we see the weeping and mourning coming after to kill a time to pluck. The same way that we see laugh and dance come after heal and build up. And we're moving through these quite quickly. Now we see verses 5 on down through verse 8. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of war and a time of peace. In all of these things, we see contrasts, we see parallels, we see them all running together. The one that's always stood out to me in this and that was often um, instructed to me as a child, especially by my grandmother, I'm not going to let you guess, I'm going to say it instead, was verse 7, a time to keep silence and a time to speak. And we all know individuals that they tend to speak much more than be kept silent. And we also understand that there are those who are incredibly quiet, that there's actually a time for them to speak, and that's profitable, and that it's useful. Consider the occasions where we have conversations with those that, that, may, not, uh, that may not believe or we're witnessing to an individual. Do we take those times? Do we see that as time to speak? How much do we see things in life and we're trying to, we know those that they just can't ever keep their mouth shut on something. It just has to be spoken. There's always something that has to be said. How often the best approach could be simply to not speak. And then all too often we can overcorrect and say, well, I don't ever want to say anything that could be offensive or that, that may trouble a person, so I just don't want to speak any words. It's the old saying of preaching, the, of sharing the gospel, um, and if necessary, using words, right? It's incredibly necessary to use words as the gospel is to be preached and as it is to be shown forth. Uh, perhaps the most common, most profitable example in, that we see of this, of, of speaking, keeping silent, is absolutely the life of Christ. How often did he go and speak and teach and preach to those that were around him? Frequently, we have so much of him sharing who he was, teaching, even re-teaching and correcting those around him. And yet, as he stands at his trial before Pilate, when asked these questions, what was he to do? He kept his mouth silent. Like a lamb before the shears, he remained silent and opened up not his mouth. How beautiful that it is that even our Lord and Savior himself perfectly exemplifies a time to speak and a time to be silent. Turn, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21 through 23. For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committeth himself to him that judgeth righteously. Who his own self bare our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, by whose stripes ye are healed. I love that we have this profoundly impactful example and that we have the giving of his word that we can look and we can see Christ perfectly exemplifying in each and every way these principles that are so clearly taught throughout all of Scripture. That our Savior suffered in silent innocence. And in verse 8, we see a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. There are things which we are to love. Many of us are familiar with those things, that we ought to have love, that we ought to send forth this love, that we are to absolutely love these things. But Scripture is also clear that we are to hate certain things. Now, Maddie doesn't like it when we use the word hate. If you've ever been around her and you've said the word hate or I hate this, she quickly comes in with, we don't say hate. She almost corrected the speaker at camp this week. Uh, he said a phrase that I'm not going to say. It wasn't super inappropriate. I just don't want her to say it again because she'll yell at me later. And she immediately goes, oh, we don't say that. She was incredibly troubled by it. But there are things that we are to hate. One of those, namely, is sin. As Christians, as people of God, we must hate sin. There she goes. Daddy said hate. <laughs> this morning, do you hate your sin? Do you hate sin? Because so often, why is it that we sin? Because we enjoy it. This is why we constantly go through the contrast of life in the flesh and life in the spirit. In our flesh, we enjoy sin. This is why we don't have to teach our kids to sin. We don't have to teach them how to do it. We don't have to teach them that it's good. They experience it. They enjoy it and say, I want to do that again. We enjoy our sin in the flesh. In the spirit, as we sin, what tends to happen? Do we enjoy it after or are we absolutely convicted of it? Romans tells us to put to death our sin, that we are, again, a time to kill. A great thing to kill is what? Sin. Mortify the deeds of the flesh, putting your sin to death. This is to be a constant practice in the life of a Christian. How much time, how much effort, how much even thought do we give to putting our sin to death? Or do we just view it as a necessary evil of this time and we say, well, I know I'm going to do it. I'm still sinful at times actively putting to death our sin. Now don't hear that and just say, okay, I'm going, to put my I'm going to put my sin to death and everything is going to be okay because if we do not have the love that is given by God, given by the Spirit, there is no killing of sin without the love of Christ. Without the Spirit, how can a man kill his own sin? We can't. We don't even want to. There is a time to love 
and a time to hate. In a culture that so often says everything is to be loved, right? We're to be accepting and tolerant and loving of each and everything. We're now, we're so easily sucked into as Christians and as a church to loving that which the Lord himself has called sin. We are called to hate. That we're just to simply be so loving and accepting that we now have lost complete sight of what it is that we are to love and what it is that we are to hate. And there we see the close of a time of war and a time of peace. How greatly do we look forward to this time of peace that is to come that we have been promised? How actively or how, how often do you consider that which is in the future, that as Christ returns, that though there is a time of war, that what will follow? This incredible rest and time of peace that is promised. Peace is so often pursued by the world, and yet it can never truly be found when God has been removed from all of the situations. Again, this is a very familiar passage to so many of you that there is a time for everything. And I've often heard uh, these verses even used by uh, public officials and by leaders of nations to give an excuse for why it is that certain things are being carried out. Those apart from the church that do not even believe in God, they look at this and they say, of course, there is a time for everything. How many of you have ever heard the phrase, everything happens for a reason? This is an almost universal principle that those who believe in God and those who do not, they employ for vastly different reasons. We say, oh, I don't, I don't know why they pass, but, you know, God must have just needed them up there and everything happens for a reason. But they don't believe in God. They don't believe that everything actually happens for a reason because at the core, they believe that everything has no purpose. There is a time for everything. In the ancient world, the Greek wanted to be free from time, free from this physical reality, free from the bounds in this prison that they understood as time. The Jews understood history as a creation of God, and we now look to the incarnation and we see God involving himself by entering into space and time. We look at time purely as a negative, and here we see at the incarnation, we see God entering in in the person of Christ, entering into space and time, dwelling among us. Consider how the Gospels present the birth of Jesus. We read it every Christmas. Luke chapter 2. Turn there for just a minute. I, I wanna, want us to see this as we look at this understanding of time and space as a backdrop for these things. We look in Luke chapter 2. Notice how Luke puts this. And it came to pass in those days that there went out a decree from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be taxed. And this taxing was first made when Cyrenius was governor of Syria. It opens into this understanding of the incarnation, the very birth of Christ, with history and time and space as a backdrop for what it was that is going to come. The birth of Christ is not just we see this as a, as a year or as a very specific time.
time and place in the Kronos sense, but we also see this Kairos. It was a monumental moment in time to which everything that is going to come after would be affected. And we see as well that the appearance of Jesus takes place in the fullness of time. Are you thankful that Christ came, dwelt among man, that at the incarnation God invades space and time? We often look back and hear things said such as, man, if I only could have been alive during the time of Jesus. How many of us have actually thought that or said that at times? We say, I wish I could have lived during the time of Christ. And we look back and we say, oh, I wish I would have been around then. Then I would have understood things better. I would have been able to be with him and everything would have been fantastic. Failing to forget that as he is ascending, what is it that he says? It is better that he should leave, that the comforter may come. We look back and we say, man, if I could have lived in this time of Christ, I think I would have a whole completely different understanding of these things. But in all that God has done, it is not random, it is not immediate, it is not just sudden, but at the incarnation it was promised beforehand and there were centuries of divine preparation at work that Christ would come in the fullness of time. We live currently in this present time. But we understand that time eventually too will pass away. And as we look forward to this, we understand the eternal glory of seeing Christ seated on the throne as we continue to lift our eyes up to him. We have the immense privilege as those who believe of kneeling before the very throne of God, praising him and seeing him as he is, in the same exact song as Mrs. Pace played this morning, in the glory of God. And to close, I just want to read verse 11. He says, He hath made everything beautiful in his time. Also he hath set the world in their hearts, so that no man can find out the work that God maketh from the beginning to the end. He has made everything beautiful beautiful in his time. So many people look at their life and they believe that time is essentially this prison and that there is nothing past, that all that exists is the current. This is just where we came out of in chapter 1 and chapter 2. There is no meaning to these things because there's only that which is left under the sun. An incredibly uh, destroying philosophy where time is simply leading to despair because all that there is in my life is going to be summed up on our tombstone. Born this year, died this year, and that is the entire value of your life. And here it's clear that there is a time for everything and the purpose that is under heaven. As we look upon the world that is around us, how is it that we are to understand that which takes place. How do we understand who God is? We understand that he has ordained all things that come to pass, that God is above and is in authority over all the happenings in the world, that there is nothing that occurs without purpose. How beautiful it is to know that though it may be difficult, there is a purpose for all things.
that suffering, what is the purpose of our suffering? Is to work patience and endurance. How hard it is to live in a world that believes that all suffering is just bad luck and that there is no profit to be had from it. You're suffering just to suffer. That Christ did not suffer just to suffer, but that his obedience was made perfect through suffering. What a beautiful reality it is that as we see all of these things, there is a time for everything. There is a purpose for all that happens. And how beautiful it is to know that in the fullness of time, Christ came. And we absolutely look forward to the day where for all time, we are glorifying him in heaven forever. Do you look forward to that day? Do you rejoice in the absolute certainty of that promise of rest? And how beautiful and majestic he is going to be when we see him as he is. How wonderful that day will be. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you. We thank you that, that as we see so clearly in your word that there is a time for everything, that there is a time to be born, there is a time to die, and these times have been appointed by you that, that none of us here were able to appoint the time of our birth. God, I pray that as we continue throughout Ecclesiastes, as we continue to see the divine work and, and providence that is so clear throughout all of Scripture, we, we see you as we are, that we recognize and that we worship you as the divine authority over all things, as we are all created. As we understand that you rule over your creation and that that as we do recognize it, a time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time that things would be plucked up, Lord, we understand the we understand that our days are numbered. We understand that none of us knows the time that you have appointed for us to die, that you have appointed once for man to die. God, I thank you that through your word you have clearly given a revelation of who you are, that you have clearly given in such clear terms the truth of the gospel that those who would believe upon the name of Jesus Christ shall be saved, that we trust in you and you alone for salvation, that we understand our sin has separated us from you, and that our sin was deserving of death, that we deserved this punishment of death, that the very wrath of God were to be placed upon us, but we understand from the gracious gift of Christ and all that he has accomplished, that you offer redemption to those who would believe. You, you offer redemption to those who have repented and who have believed upon that work. Lord, I pray that for anyone here this morning that that has not trusted or has not believed upon the work of Christ alone for salvation, that you would work upon their heart, that your spirit would convict of sin, that anyone here apart from you would be convicted of these things, and that they would trust and believe upon all that you have done, all that your word speaks so clearly on of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Christ. Lord, we see that there is a, there is a time for everything, and as we
often say, well, I can do that tomorrow or I'll, I'll do this in a few weeks. And we often set out to make plans for ourselves as if we have a guarantee of tomorrow. We understand that this is not always the case. We understand that the time is now. And we understand that everything that we do today has eternal significance that that today matters forever. God, I ask that you would continue to be with us as we continue on throughout our week, as we continue to think upon what it is that your, your word has brought forth this morning. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As Mrs. Pace plays, I'd like to just encourage you to think about what time is it right now? And again, not is it 11.55, not what time is it now, but what time is it in my life? How, how do I understand what seasons, what times, what things are to be going on in my life? How do I understand what God is doing? The worship team is going to, to come.